off in First Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm I've got the, uh, I think I've got this, this is going to be page 558 for you, and I've got, um, uh, Caleb, let's see here, back in, all right, uh, we will start off in First Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, where we ended last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13, page 558. Helpful. So last week we looked at the fact that when we place our faith in Christ, Christ baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is that we then possess the Spirit. He lives within us. We have been filled with the Spirit. And so as believers, Paul can say to us that if anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. And yet if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then God will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. And we ended last week with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. We will just read this together. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The means whereby God reconciles us to himself so that God and man are no longer estranged, that means is by uniting us to Christ. We've seen this. God is in Christ. By uniting us to Christ, we are reconciled to God. Salvation, then, is being included in Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And to remain apart from Christ is to remain continually estranged from God. That is death. And so we are saved by Christ's work through the Spirit to unite us to his body. We are saved. The mechanism by which that takes place is baptism, spirit baptism. Christ unites us to his body by baptizing us in the spirit so that we come to possess him. And in that way, we are reconciled to God. We who once were separated from God, now his spirit dwells within us. But there's another consequence of Christ's work to baptize us in the Spirit into his body. Not only in Christ are we reconciled to God, but according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, we have been reconciled to one another. And Paul starts off here with the metaphor of a body and its many members. Each one of our physical bodies is composed of many different parts. And yet, all those members or parts taken together, they all are unified together into a single body. 
That is the way Paul says at the end of verse 12, so it is with Christ. In the same way, that's the way that Christ is. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. By Christ's work of spirit baptism, we have now become members of the body of Christ. And just as the physical body has many members, and yet there is only one body, so in Christ Jesus, there are many members, there is all of us, and yet we have been baptized into one body. The picture that the scripture gives us is of Christ as the head of a body. Being in Christ is being a member of his body. Baptism in the Spirit into Christ is the means whereby we are united to Christ and joined to him. But to be baptized in the Spirit into one body also means that we suddenly show up alongside other members in the body of Christ. In this body there are many members, but because there is one Spirit, there is one body. We are united by the one Spirit. And in this body... There are Jews and Greeks, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. There are slaves and free men. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 adds males and females. And yet, in Christ, we who are many, we who are diverse, we are one body in Christ. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we are joined to Christ and we are joined to one another. We who are many members are one body in Christ. And so, our salvation is both a reconciliation to God, but it is also a reconciliation with one another. Salvation's end goal, then, is not many individual saints who are bound for heaven. Salvation's end goal is a body, a single body. Not many individual saints, but many saints joined together by the Spirit into a single body, reconciled to God and joined inseparably together in the body of Christ. And this is the idea that we're going to be working with for the next few weeks in our Bible study. This is the foundation of the church. Why do churches exist? Why do believers gather together? The answer is because of baptism. When a person believes the good news about Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection for our sins, when he entrusts himself to Christ and God's promise that Christ alone can provide the righteousness that he needs for a full and blessed standing before God for eternal salvation, when a person entrusts himself to Christ, Christ baptizes him in the Spirit. The effect then is that Christ becomes his head and that individual then becomes a member of Christ's body. And in that body, he finds himself alongside other members of the body of Christ, bound together inseparably with them because of the one spirit who joins them together. Baptism then creates the body of Christ, spirit baptism. So if you're a Christian, you are a member of Christ's body. And that is a membership that creates a union between you and Christ but also between you and other followers of Christ. Christians, followers of Christ, do not exist as individual saints. 
We do not exist and continue to live following Christ by ourselves. It's not just me and Christ. It's not just me and God. It's me and Christ and God and other members of the body of Christ. And this is why local churches exist. Because God did not intend that, his fo- that followers of Jesus Christ exist and live in this world independently. Why did God do it this way? Why was it not sufficient for God merely to reconcile individuals to himself? Why was it that in reconciling individuals to himself, he also is gathering to get them together into a body? Well, we might say that it just happens to be that way. There's one Savior, and when we all come to that Savior, we end up together gathered around that Savior. It is true that that's the way that it works. But it works that way, not by chance, but because God intended that it work that way. And you can read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, perhaps this afternoon, and you will see this. It's abundantly clear that God did it this way on purpose. And the question is, why? Why did God put the body of Christ together as he has? And the answer to that question is the effect of our sin. And for this, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2. And this will be on page number 1. Very easy to find. Sin is the great enemy of humanity. Sin brings with it death. And salvation from sin, then, and all of its consequences... Includes salvation from God's wrath. It includes deliverance from hell. It includes eternal life, deliverance from death. It includes reconciliation with God. And sin has brought about estrangement from one another. And for that reason, salvation includes the restoration of those broken relationships. Let me show you what the scripture shows us about this. We've turned to Genesis chapter 2, and look with me at verse 18. We've already noted that in the beginning there was a relationship of love and trust that existed between God and man. There was no division. And yet look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Here's Adam in the garden. It's him and God. They have a relationship, an unbroken relationship of love and trust. And yet God says, this is not a good scenario. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then skip down with me to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up, its, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man is no longer alone. Now there is a man and a woman. And the man said, verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, or because of what God has done in creating woman, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God says it's not good that the man be alone. In his relationship with God, he did not exist as a solitary individual. God creates another, a woman. He brings her to the man. She has been taken from the side of the man, and thus they are one. By God's own creation, Eve has been taken out of man. This, then, is why, verse 24, they are to be joined inseparably. A man is to leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. Why? Because that's the way that God made things in the beginning. The woman was taken from the man. They are one flesh. They are composed of a single substance. And so for that reason, the man must leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is an inseparable relationship at this point between man and God. But there's also an inseparable relationship between the man and the woman. The human race is one. One with God, but also united and one with itself. There's no division between God and man. And there's no division between the man and the wife. And we notice that in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Both of them were naked and open to each other. And this scenario, with no boundaries between God and man, and no boundaries between man and his wife, this scenario is a garden paradise. This is the Garden of Eden. But notice the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. The serpent intrudes into the garden, and he is said to be crafty. That word crafty actually rhymes with the word naked in the previous verse. And so there's a wordplay that's going on here. And the account ends in verse 7 with the loss of this intimacy between the man and the woman. They begin in verse 24 of chapter 2, naked and unashamed, no barriers between them. And at the end of the account of the fall, now they realize they are naked. 
So they sew themselves together fig leaves and make coverings. They erect a barrier between each other. Why? This was the serpent's intent. He is a crafty serpent. And when he comes to them with his temptation, he comes to them with a temptation that will not only estrange them from God, but which will estrange them from one another. When Adam and Eve sinned, it fractured every relationship in the Garden of Eden. Their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. Sin brought distance between man and God, and we see that. God comes down in the cool of the day to walk in the garden, and Adam and Eve hide themselves from God. There is distance now between man and God. And we see that sin brings distance between man and man. This estrangement between man and man now is a pervasive part of the human race. The barrier between man and God created by sin goes hand in hand with the barrier between man and woman. In choosing to rebel against God, the man and the woman not only damaged their relationship with him, they damaged it with one another. Eve conceives and she bears a son named Cain. She bears a second son named Abel. And the estrangement that man experiences between himself comes to find a new expression now when Cain rises up, remember, and kills Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we come to realize that Cain's animosity against his brother is simply the outworking of his own animosity against God. God comes to him and he warns him and says, Cain, you're on a path away from me. You're on a path to do your own thing. And sin is crouching at the door. And, sin, and Cain blows God off. He continues on in his own path. Rather than turning to God, Cain turns away from God. And the result of that is that he murders his brother Abel. The world is fractured. Relationships are destroyed. There is no unity. Sin has brought distance between man and man. And the pattern continues on. You can look in Genesis chapter 5 at Lamech, one of Cain's descendants. Lamech boasts to his wives that he has murdered a young man. The young man apparently injured Lamech in some, some way. Lamech responds by murdering this young man. Humanity once again is fractured. There is discord and strife. And this pattern continues on for some time until we get to Genesis chapter 6. This is on page 3, not hard to find, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, well, let's read, I'll read verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, or shall not strive with man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man. He saw that it was great in the earth, 
In verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. In verses 1 through 4, we are introduced to two different groups of people that lived on the earth in those days. When men began to multiply upon the earth, first, there were the offspring of what were angelic and human marriages. So angels, fallen angels come down. This is what the sons of God refer to. That phrase in the Hebrew Bible always means angelic creatures. Jude and 2 Peter both tell us that the angels who fell left their proper habitation in the presence of God and they came and took for themselves human wives. And as a result of that, sons and daughters were born to them. And what was the character of these offspring of these fallen angels and human women? Well, the product of the union of fallen humanity and fallen angels perpetuated upon the earth greater wickedness and violence and strife. In addition to these offspring of angelic and human marriages, there were the Nephilim. The King James translates that word Nephilim, uh, the Hebrew word Nephilim as giants, but the word simply means great men. It does not mean men of tall stature. It simply means people who were great. And we understand in what sense they were great when you look at the end of verse 4. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Great men in the earth. Great warriors, great tyrants, great kings. Men who sought to make a name for themselves. Men of renown. And the way that the text reads, we have to understand these two, uh, these two groups as different individuals, different groups of people. So you have these offspring, the product of human and angelic marriages. You also have these great men who are seeking to make a name for themselves in the earth. And what is the result of this? The result of this is what the Lord sees in verse 5, great wickedness. And what shape did that great wickedness take? Verse 11, the earth is corrupt and the earth is filled with violence. Violence not between man and God. Violence between man and man. And God determines in verse 12 then that he will destroy the earth. And so he sends a great flood of waters upon the earth, and the reader comes to the end of the story of the flood at the end of chapter 9. And as Noah emerges from the ark with his wife and his three sons and their wives, we expect that now the earth has been cleansed of these evildoers. Things will take a different turn at this point. In fact, things begin well. Noah and his family emerge from the ark, and they offer a sacrifice to God, and God gives them the same command that he gave to Adam in the garden. He says to them, you now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a new beginning after the flood. It is a new Eden. Will things be as good as they were in Eden when man and God are related together and man and man dwell in harmony and peace? And the answer to that is no. We quickly see things fall apart again. Human beings begin to multiply upon the earth. But rather than spread out and fill the earth, chapter 11, verse 1, they gather together in the plain of Shinar and construct a city and a tower. God has told them, spread out and fill the earth. 
They respond, chapter 11, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Before the flood, mighty men, great men, the Nephilim, making a name for themselves. And here we see the same thing going on. Let us make a name for ourselves. And that tells us that what is happening here is rebellion against God. God has said, spread out and fill the earth. These people have said, no, let's build a city. Let's stay together lest we be dispersed upon the earth. And so they've got a new technology now. They can make bricks, and that allows them to construct a city in order that they might remain together. They have gathered together around a common language and a common technology in a city, but all of this is an act of rebellion against God. And the story of the Tower of Babel is significant. Because it gives us a window into the working of things in the heavens. We have looked at the situation in Eden between Cain and Abel. We've seen Lamech. We've seen the violence in the days of Noah. And we perhaps could conclude that there's some law of humankind that disposes men towards violence and discord as people fill the earth. There is less room, and so there's fighting and discord amongst men. We might conclude that this is what the source of the conflict is. We might never actually connect the discord between mankind and himself with man's own rebellion against God. And yet, that's what the story of the Tower of Babel does for us. The story of the Tower of Babel gives us a different picture of things. The strife, the discord, the separation, the distance between human beings is not purely a natural result of human growth and population. The story of the Tower of Babel tells us that it was God's own work that brought an end to the solidarity and community at Shinar, at the Tower of Babel. They had built a tower. They had built a city. They had one language. It seems that the people then were content to dwell together. And yet, they were existing in a community of rebellion against God. And God would not commit, permit this community of, rebel, re, of rebels to exist perpetually in union with one another, and so God confused their languages. And by doing that, he drove them apart. God was the one who disrupted the unity that existed at Babel. They dispersed. And the situation that began at Babel is still with us today. We see nations and languages and peoples and tribes throughout the earth. And just as at Babel, they do not dwell together peaceably. There's very little community in the world today. Instead, there is discord and strife and war and violence. We live in a multicultural city here in Brisbane. There are people from all the nations of the earth here. And yet there's very little community. 
There's very little harmony in discord, uh, very little harmony in concord. There's very little care for one another. People largely live on their own. It's not a community. It's a group, a gathering of individuals to live their own lives apart from each other. And this is a situation that has been handed to us by God. Babel shows us that the discord and strife that exists today between mankind is not simply the product of human population growth. It is the result of God's own intervention. Human rebellion against God leads to strife amongst human beings. The separation of our relationship from God is the, is, is the cause of our separation from one another. And so war and strife and divorce and disharmony, these are all the product of our rebellion against God. And so only God can restore the unity amongst mankind. Only God can bring us to peaceful terms with himself and only God then can bring us into a relationship of peace and love with one another. And this is the great need in our world today. It is the ceasing of wars, the ceasing of strife, the ceasing of hostility, the ceasing of anger. How will God bring this creation to a place where human beings dwell together with one another in peace? That is what the new covenant gives to us. And we'll turn there in just a moment to Ezekiel chapter 36. You can turn there in your Bible, page 422. Page 422, the New Covenant. But before we get there, it's important for us to notice that Israel itself was scattered amongst the nations. Just as the people at Babel were scattered, so the nation of Israel is scattered amongst the nations because... She rebelled against God. God disbanded the nation of Israel. He would not permit them to continue to dwell together in the land of Palestine. And even today, there is still no peace in the Middle East. What will God do to regather people together into a community? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Page 422, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Here we see the themes of rebellion and reversal or rebellion reversed. Human beings, Israel has been rebelling against God. They have been sinning, committing acts of uncleanness, and yet God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all of your uncleannesses. I will take out the, heart, the rebellious heart of stone, 
I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. And in that way, the relationship with God has been restored. And the result of that will be, verse 24, that Israel, God, will then be able to gather them back together into a community, a nation of peace. And this is what we see begun in Acts chapter 2. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. We've got just about two more passages to look at here this morning. Lots of scripture, page 530. Acts chapter 2. Here in Jerusalem, we have a situation that God has handed to us through the Tower of Babel. Look, we, look with me at Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why are there so many nations under heaven? Because humanity rebelled against God. And God drove them apart into many nations. These many nations have gathered together in Jerusalem. At the sound of what occurred in verses 1 through 4, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the apostles speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. What do we have going on here? We have many, many nations from around the world gathered here in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and he preaches to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to bring the spirit that God promised in the Old Testament. He is the one who has come to enact the new covenant. And the people, in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They have just heard news that they crucified their own Messiah. And in crucifying him, they missed, their own they missed the opportunity to receive the Spirit, to enter into God's kingdom, to receive salvation. And so they say, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promise is for you. The promise of the Spirit is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says, if you will repent, and be baptized, you will receive the spirit that God promised. That sounds an awful lot like what we saw last week. We repent, we believe, and we receive the spirit. Peter says, repent, 
Believe, be baptized, you will receive the Spirit. And what will be the effect of receiving that Spirit? Well, we find that effect in verses 42 through 47. And we won't take the time to read that this morning, but you will find that these people from all the nations on the earth, they gather together now in one body. They gather together as a local church in Jerusalem. They share their possessions with one another. They are in one another's house from day to day. Why? Because they have received the Spirit. The Spirit of God has united men from every nation together in one body, a local church. And these people that Peter speaks to us, uh, that Peter preaches to here, they form the first local church that we find in the New Testament. And you can read, giving you the passages there, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, you can find the same thing there. This is the inclusion of the Gentiles. We won't take the time to find that this morning. Peter comes to preach to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. As Peter is preaching to him the good news about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Cornelius and his house. And Peter says, can anyone withhold water to baptize these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? What is Peter saying? He's saying, we see the Holy Spirit come upon Gentiles. Christ has baptized the Gentiles in the Holy Spirit. He has given them his spirit. And now, who can refuse that they be baptized? Because Christ himself has baptized them with the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and the Jews say to him, What did you go to the Gentiles and eat for? And Peter says, Look, Christ gave to them the Holy Spirit. Who was I then to say, We must not baptize? This is what Paul is getting at. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can just listen to it again or you can turn back, page 558. This is what Paul is getting at when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just as the body has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Humanity, separated from God, separated from one another. How will God restore that concord? It is by giving them his Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you. And so now, when Christ baptizes an individual in the Spirit, that one is added to the body of Christ. The giving of the Spirit was intended to create a body. When Christ poured out the Spirit from heaven, the result was the local church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. When he pours out the Spirit, the result is that we are all baptized into one body. And that means this. The Spirit is given to create this community. That is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says you are to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. We possess God's Holy Spirit. We possess him that we might be united together into a relationship of peace and love and harmony. What are those gatherings together of spirit-indwelt believers called? They're called churches. The pouring out of the Spirit is to create the church, and the church is the place where we see man and man reconciled together, where we see man and God reconciled together. This is why the church exists in unity. It is the unity of the Spirit. And we'll fill out what these things mean in the future. But this is the effect of our being united with Christ. We are reconciled to God. We are reconciled to one another. The Spirit creates the body of Christ. And this is why we gather together in the body of Christ. Because of the work of the Spirit. Let's pray and see if there's anything that we can make clear. Lord God, thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit. He has united together nations and languages and peoples that up to this point have been estranged and separated. They have been at war with one another because they were at war with you. Through your Spirit, you have granted us cleansing. You have brought us into Christ's body. We have been reconciled to God. And now we exist in the body of Christ. We exist as a community of people who love one another, people who care for one another, people who are united together by the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that those who exist in this community of Brisbane, who possess the Spirit, but have not gathered together with your people yet. We pray, Lord, that you would bring them into a local church, that they might be able to respond in that way to the work you have done to unite them to Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Any questions or anything I can make clear? Clearer? Clear? Maybe it wasn't clear the first time through. Holy Spirit, what's that? Okay, clear? Okay. All right. All of you can stop the recording. We will, uh, I think, be dismissed with that.